0: Our scripture reading for today is Matthew chapter 11. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And they departed, and Jesus began to say to the disciples concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see, a reed shaken by the wind, But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine river, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable. For the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you've revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father. Except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we work our way through this passage this morning, continuing our study of Matthew's Gospel, I want to point out a movement. Uh, We're just going to explore four things this morning. You heard me right, I said four. Uh, It's bonus Sunday. Uh, It's not a liturgical church calendar, but... We're going to look at a movement here. First, this passage starts with questioning Jesus. And from questioning Jesus, we see there's a group of people who are dismissing Jesus. And after the group of those who are dismissing Jesus, there's another group, and they are receiving Jesus. And this passage concludes with responding to Jesus. So we're just going to take our time and enjoy this and be encouraged And I pray deeply challenged so that God will do work and renewal in us by his word and his spirit. So we're going to begin with questioning Jesus. First, we see John is questioning Jesus because of hardship and unrest. And in the first 15 verses, we we realize that um, he's in prison and so he's asking some questions. And it's interesting because we know that he knows who Jesus is. Verse 14 says he's Elijah, you know, not, not literally the reincarnated Elijah. It's a term Jesus used to say. He's the fulfillment, fulfilling the work, the prophecy, the office of Elijah. So John knows who Jesus is. But when we are going through hard times, when we are pressed, when we're in trials, when we're in deep unrest... It is very human to question Jesus, and John does this. John's arrested, of course, because Herod of Antipas of Galilee visits his brother in Rome. Uh, there's other passages of Scripture, as well as Roman antiquity, that teach us this. Herod goes to Rome, he seduces his brother's wife, and then he leaves his own wife, and then he takes his brother's wife. And, of course, Herod is, a set, is, is uh, set up to be king of Israel. He's a puppet king, of course, from Rome. But the point is, he's supposed to be uh, representing uh, uh, the people of Israel and their law, and this is a a radical contradiction. So John blows the whistle, calls him out on his immoral sexual practices, and he gets tossed in prison. So here he is um, asking a very provocative question of Jesus. He says, are you the one? You say you've come to set captives free. How about setting this captive free? He's in hardship, he's in unrest, he's in the dungeon carved into the mountains near the Dead Sea, and he's confused. And I think we can understand this because this is the juxtaposition of the age-old mismatch between our understanding of God's will and what God's will actually is, and our understanding of God's timing, and we're seeing it all play out. It's repeatedly being played out, and even John, the Bible, is very honest and transparent, showing the humanness of those who follow Jesus as he's confused even offended. Notice that Jesus ends that little phrase to John's disciples by saying, oh, and P.S., blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Because, of course, Christ's mission, it offended religious minds, it offended political minds. Here there's the potential of, of it possibly offending his disciples' minds because Jesus is on his own agenda and his own mission, and this would be incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult, for John, and I think we can relate when we go through things and we wonder where in the world god is it 's very tempting to put God on trial and question Jesus. Um, we have a tendency to sort of pinch and zoom in on the will of God and and sort of truncate it perhaps and kind of fixate what we expect God to do and make it about our particular suffering in a particular moment, but when we when we zoom out and we think of Jesus Christ and his gospel message and what he said and who he claimed to be and what he did, his life, his death, his resurrection, I mean, the, the empty tomb and the defeating of the grave, when we zoom out, we realize that actually... It's not so much that God has ever presented himself as a God who's going to come into each individual situation in our life and deliver us from suffering. So much as he is a God who's defeated death and that plan of renewal and even our resurrection gives us a completely new relationship to suffering. A completely new way of, of, of relating to and thinking about suffering. In, back in 2005, there were some sociologists named Christian Smith and Melinda, Delton, and, uh, sorry, Denton, Melinda Denton. They wrote a book uh, called Soul Searching, and they were kind of exploring the modern North American view of God, of spirituality. And they came up with a phrase that described the way that most North Americans relate to God. And the phrase they use in this book was moral therapeutic deism. This is how the modern North American thinks about God. It's an experience of moral therapeutic deism. Moral in the sense that God's, it, you be good and God will be good to you. You be bad, God's going to be bad to you. It's a tit-for-tat, lever-pulling situation. All God cares about is morality. So be a moral person and God will accept you. Just It's a, a relationship. It is a transaction that is either good or bad on the basis of moralism. After the moral, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly mega-truncating their work. But the point is... This is the way that we're, the, the modern North American thinks about God. Just be good and God will be good to you. Moralism. The therapeutic side is that basically God exists to make our lives comfortable. There's a therapeutic relationship with God. I have a problem. I'm sick. I lost my job. There's a tragedy. There's a crisis. God should come in and intervene in this and turn it around. And if he doesn't, I have a faith crisis because that's why God exists. I'm a good person, I go to church, I'm moral, and now, I'm having, and now there's this thing that I need God to come in. So there's a moral th- therapy that I'm expecting God to come in and ease this, but then he doesn't. So immediately I'm thrown to atheism, deconstructionism, I'm like what is, what is, what's the point of God even if he's not making my life comfortable? He exists to make this terrible world of ours more comfortable, doesn't he? Moral therapeutic. And then the deism is that there's no king. There's no bending of the knee. There's no desiring to live to his glory. There's no king at all. We don't want a relationship with a loving heavenly father or a king. Christ Jesus is not the king. There's no throne. We just want this vague sort of God that exists to make life better. When we fall into that sort of a thing, we will very easily, we will very, easily, very quickly question Jesus. That's not what John was doing, but I'm just sort of relating his hardship and his trial and his unrest, which we can't relate to. Uh, To uh, some things that perhaps we can relate to. And so, after this questioning, I do want to point out that Jesus lovingly affirms John. Verses 7 through 15, you see that just as John bore witness to Jesus, Jesus is now bearing witness to John. And he speaks very highly of John. He says that he was uh, faithful, but he was bold, right? He wasn't a, a, a wavering reed out in the. He wasn't swayed by fear of men, even fear of the political system. He was, he was uh, a faithful man, and Jesus speaks this way. And then he says something pretty striking. He says, but even as great as John the Baptist was, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. It's a striking, striking state, statement. What does this mean? What this means is that, of course, John the Baptist, his whole life in ministry is under the dispensation of the Old Covenant, meaning the period of time Under the law. Whereas those who are in the kingdom of heaven, those who will follow Jesus, those who, as Jesus speaks of the future to come, you and I, indwelt by the power of the Spirit, not under the dispensation of law but gospel, not under the old covenant but the new, you and I enjoy something in our trials and our hardships that John the Baptist never had. He was deeply reliant on God in the prison cell. He was deeply faithful to God in the prison cell, but he did not have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in the prison cell. That is a privilege, an unfathomable privilege that you and I have when we're in our prison cells. In our pain and our hardship, the indwelling presence of God Himself, the benefits and the privileges of the new covenant. John didn't even have that. I'm going to borrow from Charles Spurgeon. He said it this way As a rule, the darkest day is lighter than the brightest night. So John, though the first in his order, is behind the last of the new gospel order. The least in the gospel stands on higher ground than the greatest under the law. And then in verse 12, Jesus says something else quite striking. He says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And scholars have struggled with how to really understand this phrase because it's got layers and possibly likely more than one meaning. So I'm going to point out a few for us to consider. Firstly, um, Jesus' reference to violence, it refers definitely to the intensity of the spiritual warfare surrounding John's ministry, surrounding Jesus' own ministry, the, the suffering of the violence, the intensity required to persevere in following Jesus. Jesus is proclaiming himself a king, and there's already a king. He's going around saying the kingdom has come, and it's his kingdom, but there's already standing power. So there's a suffering of violence in that sense. But in another sense... The kingdom of heaven has come in magnificent power and is pushing back the powers of darkness. This is being explicitly shown and manifest in Jesus' miracles. And the kingdom is making leaps and bounds and great strides. And we're seeing people demonstrate great faith, tremendous desperation, and they're actually taking hold of Jesus by force. So there's that sense of the violent taking it by force. Who are these people? They're women pushing through crowds. They're sick. They're blind. They're lepers. They're beggars in the street. They're social outcasts. They're those who are weary and heavy laden. We have all these records of people coming to the ends of themselves. Having lots of reasons to question Jesus. But instead they cling to Jesus. They're 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 saying if we only grab the hem of his garment by force. So there's that sense of this deep dependency. His deep desire to cling to Jesus and not not question Jesus. Let's move on. So after this questioning of Jesus and the discussion around uh, uh, John, there's this dismissing of Jesus by this group. There's a group, there's cities that are dismissing Jesus as irrelevant. You see it in verses 16 through 24. The woes that Jesus says to them speaks strong, striking words of judgment. Because... Giving examples of cities that didn't have the, the, the ways of God, didn't have the laws of God, didn't have the blessing of God, didn't have the promises of God, and uh, and of course they, they lived with indifference to God, which is understandable, Sodom, Tyre, Sidon. But then Jesus is saying, here you've come, these cities, you've had the laws of God, the ways of God, the pr- promises and privileges of God. You've had now the manifest Son of God. You've had the teaching of the kingdom of God, followed up by the proof and the pudding, which is the miracles of God. And then you've dismissed him with indifference. So, as you think about this, he uses some really interesting language. Jesus says, you didn't dance, you didn't cry. He gives that metaphor of the kids in the street. It doesn't matter. John's ministry was somber. Jesus' ministry comes in joy, right? John is, um, they're both calling to repentance in two different ways, but they refuse to hear God's voice in either form, right? They're not hearing John's somber, sobering call to repentance in the rivers of baptism. They're not hearing Jesus' joyful proclamation of the kingdom of God, the healing of the sick, the miracles, the feeding. It doesn't matter what form the mercy and the, the, the gospel of God comes. They don't respond to it because it's not according to their conventions. Jesus quotes the criticisms against him. He does it in verse 19. He quotes the criticisms against him. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This, this is intended to be a malicious nickname. And Jesus embraces it. And he condemns these cities for not considering the implications. of of him being a friend to tax collectors and sinners. In verse 19, it says, but wisdom is justified by her children. So you look at the fruitful ministry of John, the wisdom of the kingdom being justified by his ministry. Look at the ultimate ministry of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the changing of the world, the upside down kingdom that has redefined in the West, our understanding of grace, of human dignity, you know, the idea of reaching down and caring and loving the, uh, the, 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 the poor and the outcast and the refugee, that did not come out of Greco-Roman politics and understanding and civilization. That reached down into the gutter and care for the person who can't care for themselves and give a voice to the powerless, that did not rise out of the political systems of honor and shame cultures globally. Did not rise out of that. Jesus Christ changed the world even for those who do not believe in him and reject him and think we're crazy for believing in him he changed the world so wisdom is justified by her children and we see that those who dismiss Jesus as relevant uh, there is tremendous and eternal relevance even in what he's done so he rebukes these cities because it says that he did the most signs there and they didn't repent He's not doing backroom meetings. He's not saying things that are covert. He's out in the street doing things that are absolutely overt. And what's interesting about those who dismiss Jesus as irrelevant, these cities that he mentions here, they didn't attack Jesus. They didn't try and arrest Jesus. They didn't persecute Jesus. They just saw the signs, ate the bread, took their healings, and moved on with their lives. They just dismiss Jesus. Thanks for the bread. Thanks for the eyesight. That Jesus Jesus guy's a nice guy. But moving on with our lives, the real concern, Rome, this political oppression. Let's keep our eyes out for the Messiah, guys. Thanks for the bread in the desert, but that's cute interesting miracle, you're healing the sick and you're spitting in the ground and you're giving deaf people their hearing back, but we got political problems. That's the number one focus of our... Do you understand this? That's just the dismissal. It's, it's amazing. And Jesus rebukes them because they're, really they're relating to God like this obscure power to leverage instead of a father to love. So they can't See any of the signs. You know, there's a thing in the ancient world, and still today in many cultures, called votive worship, which means uh, we believe in a multiplicity of gods, and whatever I happen to need at a particular point in my life, I worship that god. You go to the temple, and then you've got all these little altars to choose from the god of the crops, the god of fertility, the god of love, the god of sex, the god of, uh, of provision, the god of you know, re- getting revenge on my neighbor who did this unjust thing to me. There's all these gods. And so whatever you need, you give your, you, you worship that God, you give, but then you, you, know, you have a good crop, and then you don't have to go back to the temple again, because everything is good. But if you can't have good crops, or have children, or whatever else that you need in your life, or your business isn't doing well, you go back to the temple, and then you worship the God, and you do your thing. Votive worship. And so in a weird irony, their way of relating to God, even though they're the very people of God, is like with this sort of a Votive worship. They just dismiss Jesus. They dismiss his claims. They dismiss who he says he is. Their prayer is essentially a shopping list. I've prayed that way. Prayer is a shopping list. I don't want God for God. I don't even know what that means. I don't love God for God. I don't even know what that means. i just got a list of things I need him to give me. And then if he does that, great. Right, if he doesn't do that, maybe I'll leave the church. Votive worship. Just dismiss Jesus. By the way, I, I can't go down this bunny trail. But for those of you who want to deep dive, what I just said, that is the theme of the entire book of Job. That's how the whole thing starts. He doesn't love. This is the, acute, this is the accusation, accusation of the devil to God. Nobody loves you for you. Nobody. Well, there's this Job guy who loves me. No, he doesn't. He loves you because he's healthy and he's got a house. And he's got kids and his life is good. Take all that stuff away and he will not worship you. That's the whole premise of Job. And so, there's the questioning of Jesus. There's the dismissing of Jesus. But then there's this receiving of Jesus. Jesus turns in verses 25 to 27. And he thanks God for those who receive Jesus' words as truth. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. You've given them to babes. Hidden? How how is anything hidden? Miracles in the streets. One. Wondrous things that just defy the laws of nature. How is anything Jesus doing hidden? Jesus is teaching and healing and proclaiming in plain sight. How is it possible to hide in plain sight? I'm glad you asked. 1938, Action Comics number one, Superman. Hits the shelves. And as you know, Superman disguises himself with glasses. The greatest disguise of all time. By the way, for those of you who didn't know, see, it's me. It's your pastor. He's just, I'm getting old. I need these now. Okay, glasses. So how does this even work? Well, if you're just a fickle fan of Superman, then of course you think the glasses are stupid. But if you are a faithful follower, you understand it's not about the glasses. It's the fact that mild-mannered Clark, this is not what they're looking for. Every single conquering leader in world history, including every political leader today, asserts their kingdom by confronting the power and replacing the power at the top. Jesus comes, mild-mannered Savior who stoops, and he does not go to replace the power in Rome at the top. He goes straight to the needy at the bottom. And so the wise and the prudent look at him, and they're... Paradigm for the Messiah. And they're like, nah bro, this guy has glasses. But the blind and the deaf and the outcasts and the refugees and the beggars. And the children. They're looking at Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna, it's Superman. They can see it. Hidden from some, seen by others. How in the world is that possible? It's because, you know... Those who dismiss Jesus as irrelevant, and those who receive the words of Jesus as truth, they're not looking at two different things. They're looking at the same thing, but they're not seeing it in the same way because of this thing called humility. If you are an artist and you do life drawings, when I was in class, we would do a life drawing. And there would be an object or a person or a model or something, and you would do the life drawing. And then the teacher, they would time it. They would say, we're going to do five-minute life drawing, 10-minute life drawing, 20-minute life. And then they would say after five minutes, 10 minutes, okay, draw it again from a different perspective. When they said that, it obviously meant get up from where you're sitting and sit in another seat. Because if you say, if if you just flip the paper over and don't get out of your chair and draw it again, it's going to be the exact same thing. But those who are willing to humble themselves and get up and say, well, I need a new perspective. And a new perspective means getting up from where I'm sitting and moving somewhere else. Those get a new perspective. You stay in the same seat and nothing happens. When Jesus was performing the sign in these cities, some humbled themselves and they moved and they saw. And others didn't humble themselves and they remained unmoved and they didn't see. And so in verse 27, we get this strong, sobering statement from Jesus. He says, he's the only one Who really knows God. And he goes on to say. He's the son. And the only way you and I can even know the father. Is through the son. That means. This is a relationship. That cannot be earned. It cannot be achieved. It can only be received. It is a humbling statement. Tremendous. Which moves us on to the last thing. The responding. After the questioning and the dismissing and the receiving, this passage of of Scripture closes with responding. Responding to Jesus' call. It's a call into renewal and a call into rest. He says, come to me. A statement of tremendous authority. All the other scribes and leaders that have been saying, go to God. Nobody has the audacity to say, come to me. Jesus says, come to me. An invitation that's unthinkable unless you are God. And what do, look at what he's doing. Come to me. Jesus doesn't drive anyone away. He, he calls everyone to himself. Come to me, you who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden. Labor implies burdens that we take on ourselves. Heavy laden, that implies burdens that others put on us. This is shots fired, of course, because the religious leaders are putting heavy burdens on people. If you're exploring Christian faith today... What you need to know is that the symbol of Christian faith is a cross, not a ladder. That the ladder is this ladder climbing leverage situation, and the cross is this this thing that cannot be achieved, it is received by grace alone. This relationship with God, this love of God, the indwelling power of God, and of course the promise of gospel, evidenced in the empty tomb, which is the renewal of all things, a life in God. And so, who does Jesus call? Who does he invite into this life of renewal and this life of rest? He doesn't invite good people. He invites all people. All who are willing to confess, yeah, I labor. Willing to confess, yeah, I am weary. Willing to confess, yeah, you want to know something? It doesn't matter how many toys I accumulate. It doesn't matter how fit my body gets. It doesn't matter how big the bank account is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I have to be honest that when I look in the mirror, my soul is not at rest. That's who he calls. And P.S., that's all of us. That's all of us apart from his saving grace and his his indwelling spirit. We don't have rest. You know, God is sovereign. Jesus just said we can't even know God apart from him. This is an overt statement of total sovereignty. And then in his next breath, Jesus shows us how God has chosen to exercise his sovereignty. Not distancing himself from us, coming to us. Not silently plotting and damning lovingly overtly calling you can't even you can't even have a relationship with god without me so come confess your weary jesus christ the lord of creation he's calling he continually calls he's the god of recreation and so we want to confess this you know the the famous atheist jean paul sartre said this there comes there comes a time when one asks even of shakespeare and beethoven is this all there is? Blaise Pascal once wrote that in regards to the constant craving that is the signal that we have an idea of happiness, but we cannot attain it. Novelist John Cheever he says it this way. The main emotion of moderns who have all the advantages of modern society and wealth and education and medicine is disappointment. Nobody is immune to this pervading sense of disappointment or fatigue or endless chasing. Which is why Augustine, one of the church fathers in North Africa, famously said, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless and they will remain restless until they find their rest in you. So we can't cope with the restlessness through leisure and vocation and toys and trinkets and amusement. That's all anesthetic that just numbs the problem. Jesus says in verse 29, and I close with this, Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Learn what? Learn that united to me, yoked to me, there is renewal that leads to rest. You know, the the ancient Jewish community, they commonly used these phrases. The teachers would use these phrases. There's the yoke of the kingdom, the yoke of the law, the yoke of command, the yoke of repentance, the yoke of faith. Jesus says, forget about all these, these yokes. Take my yoke. He goes on to say, it's easy. In English, our understanding of easy is like, oh. Huh. But in the original Greek, easy means... There's another sense we use the word easy. Uh, and and, and, and the, the, the other way that we use it in English is the meaning in the Greek. If something is easy, it's like... It doesn't mean... Uh, it, it means that it's like it comes naturally to you. You watch, you watch someone who is extremely skilled... In in hockey or football or badminton or tennis or mathematics or poetry or music. And you watch them use their skill and it seems so easy. But it's actually the product of tremendous mentorship and discipleship. It's tremendous learning. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. It's easy. In other words, in the essence in the Greek is it's custom fitted. It's tailor-made. It is the new humanity. It is the humanity who we fail to be, but who we were created to be. He says, take my yoke upon you. You unite yourself to me. And there is an ease to it because this is actually a life of congruence into who you were created to be. It is the renewal. And to the degree that you embrace that renewal and you put off your sin and you, and you have a reordering of the loves. And you hate the, the things that are unlike the nature of God. And you put on the things that are like the nature of God. Then that's not simple. Simple. It takes our whole life and we fail at it, but you also can't take 10 slap shots and then go to the NHL. So it's like there is a joy that comes along with this idea of the discipleship, of the ongoing mentorship, and this sort of desire to embrace the disciplines, the means of grace, the spiritual disciplines of being yoked to Jesus in prayer and scripture meditation and worship. These are all things. This is why if you happen to have children, we raise our kids in the formation because Renewal and rest does not come through distraction. It comes through formation. Oh, I need a holiday. That's just distraction. Oh, I need a glass of wine. Distraction. Oh, I need fill in the blank. It's all distraction. But true rest, true renewal, that comes through the ongoing liturgical life of formation. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy and it's light. May we enjoy him and glorify him forever. Amen. Let's pray.